The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Come this evening to Exodus chapter 5. We've seen Moses commissioned by God, meeting with God at the burning bush. We've seen uh, him gifted by God and um, encouraged in light of his objections. And now we see him finally go to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 5. We want to read all of chapter 5, and we're going to read the beginning of chapter 6 as well. Hear God's word. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God." Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters has set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle, and that is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work, no straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. 
The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land to which they live. They lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. This is the word of God. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Moses and Aaron, representatives of God, ambassadors of God, sent to speak on God's behalf. And God ordered Pharaoh to free his people from bondage. Well, we've seen what happened to Moses that he was enabled to have such courage to go to the king of Egypt, to boldly go and stand before Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. That courage and that boldness came from his experience of meeting the Lord God at the burning bush, being commissioned by him. And so he's able to say in verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Literally, the God of the Hebrews is on our side. Moses had seen God's glory and had received God's calling. And Moses' experience of God's presence made him courageous and bold to do God's will. And at the end of chapter 4, we, we saw last week that Moses gives God's message to the people of Israel, and they believed. Moses told the Israelites about God meeting with him and appearing to him through the burning bush, and he, he did the various signs in the sight of the Hebrews, and they received Moses as sent by God. And it said, 
It said there at the end of chapter 4, verse 31, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. And so now we're in chapter 5. And chapter 5 tells us what happened when Moses initially goes to Pharaoh. Now we know the whole story, so we kind of just read along, but was it what everyone was expecting? And I hope you see the answer is absolutely not. Just when it seemed that the Hebrews were about to be delivered and their oppression released and freed, instead, it was doubled, we might say. Just after Moses comes to them with this encouraging message that Yahweh, the Lord, their God, had heard their cry, then Pharaoh tightened the chains of their captivity. And not only did Pharaoh refuse to let them go, he now ordered them to make bricks without providing the required straw. Straw was essential in the process of brick making in those days because straw was placed in every brick as like a reinforcement, like you'd put steel or steel um, reinforcement rods into cement. And the straw helped the brick to stay intact and to hold together and to be stronger. And now the Israelites had to scatter throughout the land, we read, and to obtain straw or something close to straw like stubble, you know, grasses that would substitute for straw. And we learn here that some of the Hebrew slaves served as foremen under the Egyptians, and these, these foremen were beaten by the Egyptian taskmasters when they were not able to produce the required allotment of bricks. We might say that for the Israelites, from chapter 4 to chapter 5, it was out of the frying pan into the fire. What do we learn? There's a lot in chapter 5 in the beginning of 6, but I want us to see three main points. The first is this one. Pharaoh is a picture of unbelief. A picture of unbelief. Pharaoh is one of the foremost examples in the Bible of hardening your heart against God. And we're going to see that unfold as we see the ten plagues in chapters to come. But here we see the beginning of it with Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't know the true God. He doesn't believe the words of the true God. And he doesn't want to know the true God. In fact, Pharaoh considers himself to be a god. And he will resist and oppose anyone who tells him otherwise. Pharaoh is a dramatic example of unbelief. But all unbelief is essentially saying to God, I do not want you to rule over me. I do not want to live my life the way you want me to live my life. I do not want to submit my life to your word. I don't want to believe in you and trust in you and love you and worship you. Moses and Aaron, we see here, go to Pharaoh boldly and they declare the word of God. And we see from Pharaoh's response that he did not have the slightest intention of letting his productive workforce leave the country. In fact, it's clear from his response that he saw the request of Moses as preposterous. 
There wasn't any thinking on his part that went into it. He defied the threat of God's judgment when, in verse 3, when Moses goes on and talks about lest God fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. He's not saying on the Hebrews only. He's talking about us as in the Egyptian and Hebrews both, unless God falls upon us, which God ultimately does in the plagues. Of course, the Hebrews are spared in various ways. But Pharaoh's question in verse 2 is really the central question of the book of Exodus, where Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? By the time the Egyptian army is swept away in a flood of water by God's power, even Pharaoh will know who the Lord is, but it will be too late. Pharaoh denied that God had any claim on his life. That's the nature of unbelief. Pharaoh set himself up in the place of God. And that is the nature of unbelief as well for all of us in our sin, that we are little gods. Really, maybe we don't acknowledge it, but we claim the lordship of our lives. Pharaoh claimed to be divine. Most of us don't claim to be divine, but we act that way. According to Egyptian theology, maybe you know something of this, the creator himself had assumed kingly office in the person of Pharaoh, the first Pharaoh on the day of creation. So in his mind, as Moses and Aaron stood before him, Pharaoh was probably reminding himself that he was a godlike descendant of the first Pharaoh and of God. So what we're seeing here is Pharaoh, and as the book of Exodus unfolds, Pharaoh becomes the classic example of unbelief and rebellion against the living God and the lordship of God in our lives. Pharaoh was ignorant of the true God. And so it is with all of us until we come to know and love the one true God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Until that time in our lives, we remain on the throne of our lives. What we need in our ignorance of God is to receive the instruction of the Bible about who God is and how he's revealed himself in Scripture and in the person and work of Jesus Christ and to believe the promise of the gospel, to repent and turn from being the Lord of our lives to giving him our lives and trusting Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. Unbelief is very rarely so dramatic as Pharaoh's. Maybe we can think of some dramatic occasions of that in the history of the world. But often, unbelief is very, what we might say, normal and very socially acceptable. Maybe that's the way it is at your job or in your neighborhood or in your school where there are lots of people around you who don't believe in the God of the Bible at all. In fact, they scoff and mock and laugh at maybe a fanatic who believes in Jesus Christ as his or her Savior and Lord. That's seen as the abnormal thing. They might think, well, a little religion is okay in its place, but don't get extreme about it. Don't be devoted to God. Don't give him your life. What are you doing? And so all of us have to assess our lives. Have we 
turned to the living God? Have you turned to the living God through Jesus Christ? Committed your life to him. Pharaoh, the example of unbelief. But secondly, our second main point from Exodus 5 is that chapter 5 teaches that sin is a harsh taskmaster. It's hard to say that word. Sin is a harsh taskmaster. In other words, sin is a strong slave master. Remember, the book of Exodus teaches us God's pattern of salvation. The book of Exodus, the the dramatic exodus, the release of Israel from their slavery in Egypt is the dramatic Old Testament example of God's salvation. And we learn through the book of Exodus, and it's fulfilled in the New Testament in the work of Christ, that God's saving grace means release from captivity, freedom from bondage, deliverance from oppression. In other words, to be saved is to be rescued from slavery in order to serve the living God. That's the main message of the book of Exodus. Think of what slavery was like for these Israelites making bricks. Think of them working out in the hot sun all day, probably very wearing very minimal clothing, little something, just to, uh, as a slave would wear, didn't have those nice hiking hats. I've got a few of them hanging in my garage. When we go to Texas every year, I always take an assortment of them, and I also just carry one in my carry-on bag in case my suitcases gets lost because I want a good hat out there in the sun. And um, those slaves were laboring in temperatures, regularly over 100 degrees, I'm sure. We go on hikes in Texas, and it's dry in West Texas, and it does get over 100 degrees. And if we're out there for an hour or two in that, it's kind of exhilarating. But, you know, we've got water bottles strapped on every part of our belt and, you know, making sure we stay hydrated. And I wear long sleeve white shirts and a hat and everything just to... that The Egyptian, the Israelites didn't have any of that in Egypt at all. And here they're forced to make bricks out of mud. Think of them working in the mud and no doubt at times being whipped or beaten if they slacked, at, slacked off at all or even were exhausted. Certainly they would have been bullied by slave drivers who probably derived perverse pleasure from abusing their slaves. Bullies always enjoy making people suffer. What a picture of a bitter bondage. Would it means to be enslaved. And in the same way, spiritually, sin is the harshest of taskmasters in all of our lives. The bitter bondage of sin is always promising life and joy, but instead, we know the Bible says it delivers to us slavery and death. Sin is always demanding more and more, but giving less and less in return. There's that great description in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Paul goes on to describe that. Or think of John eight thirty four, where Jesus says, Everyone who practices sin 
is a slave to sin. Jesus is saying that it is the very nature of sin to seek to control the sinner's whole life. We become a slave to sin. And what we need is someone like Moses to set us free from bondage. What we need is the greater Moses, Jesus Christ, the prophet like Moses, but was greater than Moses who Hebrews 2.15 says he came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus Christ sets us free from the slavery to sin by his death on the cross, by his perfect life on our behalf, by his resurrection from the dead, vindicating his great work. Everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ is released from the slavery of sin in order to live for the glory of God. And so in Revelation 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle John receives the word from him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We might ask, well, I don't know if I'm enslaved to sin, but what are the things that enslave us? Well, we could list all the kinds of sins, anger, envy, covetousness, gossip, lust, malice, bitterness, ambition. You might be enslaved by scandalous sins, but you can also be enslaved by normal idolatries of the world. You can be enslaved by the worship of money or sports or success or the good old American dream, or you can be enslaved to your appearance or what other people think of you or simply living for yourself all the time. That's a form of slavery to sin. It comes in all kinds of varieties. But notice, notice to whom the Hebrew foreman cried out in their bondage. Chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. I think this is important to note. When we think about slavery to sin and the way out of that, it says, Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is your own people. But he said, You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you. They cried to Pharaoh. Isn't this interesting? It's easy to understand why the Israelite foremen went to Pharaoh. Although they were slaves themselves, they were used to being treated with some respect. They were the foremen among the slaves. And quota or no quota, I'm sure they were shocked to receive a beating from their Egyptian overlords. And possibly they were thinking, this might be reflected in this request and them coming to Pharaoh, that some mistake had been made or that there was a breakdown in communication or the chain, chain of command in some way. In effect, they were saying, why are you beating us? Your people are the ones who stop supplying us with straw. It's their fault. If anything, beat them. And so they take their protest to Pharaoh himself. It's ironic, isn't it, that at the end of chapter 4, they have cried out to the Lord. And earlier in the book, they, they cry out to the Lord, and God heard them. But now, with things not going as they expected and with no immediate deliverance, and instead, things getting worse, here, same word, the foreman cried out 
to Pharaoh. Hmm. How does Pharaoh respond? Is he kind and compassionate? Is he even reasonable? Is he just and fair? Well, I think you know the answer to all those questions. Now, there's nothing wrong for those who are employed of going to those in authority to seek better working conditions. Don't get me wrong about that. I'm not speaking to that issue here. But what we see in Exodus is a spiritual conflict, a spiritual conflict which clearly exemplifies the slavery of sin and the devil. And Pharaoh does not care about the Israelites. He sees them only as a means to an end, to greater productivity. And, and he mocks them. He accuses them of being lazy. He is an oppressive master and Lord. But doesn't this request of the foreman and Pharaoh's response, doesn't this typify the futility of seeking true freedom, seeking true liberty from what this broken and sinful world has to offer us. How empty it is to seek to satisfy our souls with anything but the living water of Jesus Christ. The women's Bible study is studying through Ecclesiastes, and Patty and I have been discussing Ecclesiastes almost every week as she studies through the book. And that theme keeps coming back. Vanity of vanities, very first verse. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity, says the preacher. And the book investigates all the different ways that the preacher would satisfy, essentially, his soul thirst for meaning. And we know that the answer is only in the true God. But he tries everything. He tries work. He tries pleasures. He tries riches, all of these things. The foremen should have known better than to try to fix things on their own. God had chosen Moses and Aaron to serve as their representatives, but... Interesting, we read, I won't take a lot of time, but verse 21, they come out from meeting with Pharaoh, and what do they say to Moses and Aaron? They call down a curse on them. Wow. They say, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh. That's calling down a curse, asking God to judge Moses and Aaron. Ironically, Moses and Aaron are doing what the Lord wants them to do. The foreman should have known better than to expect any sympathy from Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the problem, not the solution. What hope is there in appealing to Pharaoh for deliverance? And so spiritually, even so, sin is not our friend, but our enemy. Sin may seem to somehow be our hope, to somehow give happiness, to somehow give relief or satisfaction in this fallen world. Isn't that why people, why all of us give in to temptation in different ways? But ultimately, sin enslaves us even more, and sin always pulls the bait and switch, holding out the allure of temptation, and then instead switching it and bringing bondage. No, it takes God's power through the gospel of Jesus Christ to release a sinner from the bondage of guilt and sin. And so we are called by the gospel to cry out in faith, not to anything or anyone other than the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the lover of our souls. He is the one to whom we may freely come. And 
We're reminded if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John 8, 36. That's the promise of the gospel. I would make special application of this to the Christian life. If Christ has set us free, we must not go back to the shackles of our former slavery. Christians are often tempted to do what the Hebrew foreman did, especially when someone first comes to Christ. Someone comes to Christ, maybe as a young adult, maybe later in life. At first, everything seems to go well. You're in that honeymoon period with the Lord, so to speak. A new Christian often makes rapid spiritual progress, and maybe all kinds of scandalous sin that were once there fall to the wayside, and truly there's change that takes place, and there's real victory over sin. But then along comes some real difficulty in that person's life, maybe suffering in some form that surprises them. Or maybe some situation of strong temptation. Maybe just a feeling of the lack of the presence of God with Him weaning us from from the felt experience of His presence here in our lives and teaching us to walk by faith. And what's the first impulse? The first impulse is to go back to the old sinful ways of coping with life of coping with discouragement, of coping with sorrow, of coping with stress, to go and return to the old self-pity or to the alcohol and drugs or to the old patterns of sexual sin or some other pattern of old sin. But the way ahead is always to cling to Jesus Christ and His cross. He is the deliverer of our souls from the bondage of sin. And yes, Christians do continue to sin and struggle with remaining sin, But Christians also grow in overcoming sin, and it's a battle in this life. But to follow Jesus Christ and to trust in Him means to continue to trust in His power to save and deliver from sin, and we must never return to Pharaoh. Well, our third application, our third point is this. In our failure, we need to return to the presence of God In our failure, we need to return to the presence of our God. In our weakness, in our remaining sin, we need to go to God with humble repentance and faith. I want us to look and think about this. We come to the end of chapter 5, and Moses and Aaron have just been cursed by the And look at Moses' response, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I want you to see the beauty of this passage because Here is a picture of Moses returning to his God. Moses returning to the presence of God. He doesn't do so perfectly by any means. Most commentators will tell you as you read these and study these verses that Moses' prayer here is probably mixed with a sinful element or elements of accusing God in some way wrongly and impatience with God's way and purposes. But still, he is doing well in that Moses is bringing his complaint to his God. 
Think of how things have gone for Moses. He meets God at the burning bush. He's called and commissioned by God. He's been equipped with God by God by these signs. And he's been given the word of God to speak. And so he goes to the Israelites like God tells him to, and they receive him, and they worship God, and they trust his word. And now how does it go? He goes to Pharaoh. It goes terribly. Pharaoh utterly rejects his message. And we might say, but Moses, don't you remember in chapter 3, God told you that Pharaoh would reject the message and God would continue to show his mighty hand. Well, he didn't perfectly believe God's word, I guess. And the oppression of the Hebrews has only intensified. But I think it's a blessing to think of Moses returning to the Lord at the end of chapter 5. Moses goes to God And God graciously responds in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6. And what does God say to Moses? In one sense, as we look at these, we're going to skip through it here. God doesn't say anything dramatically new. But in another sense, God gives Moses just what he needs. He reminds Moses of who he is and what he has promised. And in doing so, God refreshes Moses with his presence so that Moses is able to continue in the task God has called him to do, even though the people are disheartened and don't believe him at this point. Isn't this a precious truth? Isn't it a precious truth for all of us, especially if you're a leader in any capacity, and most of us lead or teach or are examples to others in some way, and leadership can be very discouraging. You seek to pour your life out and to give and serve and labor for the glory of God. And often things don't work out at all like you expect that that they would. There might be conflict. There might be failure. There might be minimal results. Parents may pour themselves out for their children with the goal and the prayer that their children would walk with God. And the results seem to be not coming at all or the opposite of what they would hope and expect. Or a pastor might come to a church I've seen this with many of my seminary friends, and and there's opposition, or maybe he comes and he begins to preach the Bible in a true and faithful way, and the church begins to dwindle and decline. Or maybe a missionary goes to the field, and all the expectation and excitement of being called and raising support, and, and then he or his wife or one of their children will have some disease or some response, which we've seen with missionaries again and again, and they'll be forced to move to another field or even come home. You could go through example after example. Even though God had told Moses that Pharaoh would harden his heart, Moses was obviously surprised when it actually happened. And everything seemed to go wrong. And Pharaoh is defiant. And the Israelites are more severely oppressed And the foreman come out and call a curse down on him. That's a far cry from where chapter 4 ended with all of Israel worshiping and bowing down before the Lord and saying, yes, we believe you're sent from God. But Moses seeks God. In his perplexity, he seeks God. He took his troubles to the Lord, and that's a clear application for you and for me. However, God has called you to serve him to spread out your need to the Lord, to tell the Lord your sorrow, 
And maybe your prayer will be mixed by some element of sin. Still, go to the Lord, go to His Word, and seek Him in His promises. Rest in His sovereign love and purposes for your life. Look what God's reply to Moses is. I'll just skip through quickly verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6. It merits a sermon on its own. In verse 1, God says He will do what He said He will do that he will deliver Israel with a strong hand. He will move Pharaoh to drive the Israelites out. Very strong language. And then in verses 2 and 3, God reminds Moses who he is. And there's this interesting verse, verse 3, where God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That's the phrase El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Probably the best explanation of that verse is that the patriarchs uh, probably knew the name Yahweh, but they did not fully understand the meaning of God's name. I am that I am. God had revealed himself to Moses. And really, that name Yahweh in the book of Exodus is now being revealed in a new and deeper way in God's saving work in the book of Exodus showing Yahweh is the great God of salvation. And then in verses 4 and 5, God reminds Moses that he's a covenant God. I also established my covenant with them, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then in verse 5, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God is a covenantal God. He gives promises. And so in the new covenant, God's promises are true. And he is a God who keeps his promises. Paul says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Moses is reminded of that same truth. And then in verses 6 through 8, there's this stunning declaration. If you read through that, you'll notice that the phrase, I will is repeated six times. God says what he's going to do. He says, I will, verse 6, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land. You could say these are the Old Testament I wills of God. There's a book called the I wills of God in the Psalms that speak about all the times of in the Psalms where God says, I will. And then in the New Testament, God is a God who says, I will do it. What an amazing response, in other words, by God to reveal himself anew to Moses and to build him up in faith in God's promises. And that is what you and I need as well. But notice especially in chapter 6, verse 9, notice how this appearance, this revelation by God, this encouragement by God concludes, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They still didn't listen to him. Now we go on to see that God continues to work, but... I want us to be encouraged. God blesses Moses 
with a deeper knowledge of himself, even though nothing immediately changes in Moses' circumstances. Do you hear that? That's true for even Moses. Isn't that often true for you and for me? Isn't that an encouragement, maybe a backhanded encouragement to all of us? God wants us to trust in him and to continue to simply be faithful in serving him, and we must leave the results to him. Whatever trouble you may be facing, the way ahead is to seek God's presence in the means of grace he's given to us in the New Testament time, and that is by Bible study and prayer, seeking the Lord personally in fellowship with the people of God, corporate worship as you again and again, week by week, join together to lift up God's name, partaking of the Lord's Supper, again fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and the promise of God is that he meets with us and he graciously shows himself to us and strengthens our faith. That is what Moses needed and that is what all Christians need again and again and again as we live in this broken, sinful world. Let me just conclude with this question. We've looked at the nature of unbelief, the enslaving power of sin, and the encouragement that God gives to his servants. Have you come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to free you from the bondage and power of sin? I hope that tonight you will consider that. If you've known in your heart that you're keeping God at arm's length, I hope that you will come to grips with that question and that you will seek the Lord, cry out to him, go to the Lord Jesus Christ, go to all the I wills of God in the gospel. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. Thank you for this vivid illustration of spiritual truth that you bring to us and that we have in your word. Thank you that we can know that unbelief is not the way ahead. Thank you that we can know that there is freedom and joy and eternal life in the liberty that Jesus Christ brings. Oh, Lord, let us walk in that this week. And if there is trouble, if there is perplexity in our lives, Lord, let us seek your presence and know your grace through Jesus Christ, our great high priest and the one who ever lives to make intercession for us. We pray in his precious name. Amen.